Amen. What a beautiful morning of worship so far. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John uh, chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 4 through 10 this morning. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. As you're opening up there, let me just say, uh, during COVID, uh, in order to meet social distancing requirements and everything else, we started uh, seating the choir upstairs, sort of surround sound version of the choir up there. And uh, it sounds so good, and we've enjoyed it so much, they're up there a lot, so it's rare that we get to see them back here. Now, I kind of like y'all, some of y'all up there. I'll be honest, I like to kind of keep an eye on one or two of you, but uh, all that being said, is it not amazing just to be able to look and see how much our choir has grown? We, we don't see them uh, up here so often, but uh, this is, I want to remind everyone as well, this is Memorial Day weekend, you know what I mean? I think I've told everyone before, book of Revelation, the Bible says in heaven there will be no more sea, and that's so people come to church on holidays, uh, they don't have a beach or a lake or anything like that to go to, and so... Uh, uh, no, they're, they're here, on, and you're here on Memorial Day weekend, so thank you for that commitment, and what a beautiful thing it is, and Nathan, let me just commend you and the great work you've done in uh, helping our choir grow and leading our choir so, so wonderfully well. First John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, if you have your Bibles open there, I want you to go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in such a way as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to us. Beginning verse 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray together. O oh God, would you open our eyes today to hear your word, to see your word, to see the truth of the gospel. And, oh God, I pray our hearts would be changed by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My eighth grade year, uh, when I was an eighth grader at Boaz Middle School, um, I had a teacher there who taught English, and I think she was a little frustrated with me that year. Understandably so, okay? And... Um, I was struggling to meet all my reading goals, do all the things I wanted to do. I was just kind of having a hard time um, figuring out what I wanted to read and, and all this different kind of thing. And, and though I don't think I was ever her favorite student, 
And, and I, I don't even remember her name at this point. She was only at our school for just a year or two. Nonetheless, she made one of the biggest impacts on my life that anyone's ever made. Was one day, I think in exasperation, she sat me down, and I didn't know enough to know everything, but I could just tell this felt like a Hail Mary. You know, like, we're going to do something with this guy. And she handed me a book by George Orwell and said, I think you might like this. It's an allegory, but I think it'll challenge you, and I think you'll enjoy reading it. So, obviously, you probably know by now, she handed me Animal Farm by Orwell, and I loved it. I still love Animal Farm. I've gone back and reread it. Uh, later, I loved the allegory of Animal Farm. There's just everything about it I really enjoyed and loved. And because I loved Animal Farm so much, later I read another one of Orwell's books called 1984. My eighth grade year, I wound up reading, I think, almost every classic dystopian fiction novel. I don't know what that says about what I was like as an eighth grader. You know, I'm reading Brave New World and Fahrenheit 451 and all these different books. Everything but A Clockwork Orange. I've still not got that one knocked out. But I'm reading all this uh, 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 dystopian fiction about totalitarian governments and just devoured those books. I love them. They're amazing. I still find them really impressive. But I read 1984 in the eighth grade, and in it... Uh, the totalitarian government that's called Oceania, it's a conglomeration of lots of different countries, had come together, and they used three slogans in their propaganda. It's repeated over and over and over again to sort of brainwash the masses who live in this country. War is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. Later on in uh, college, I got to go... Uh, I say got to, I had the experience of going to the Auschwitz concentration camp, and there uh, in German over the front gate, it says, work will make you free. Orwell clearly borrowing uh, from history in many ways. War is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. You can see the way that Orwell was predicting a world in which everything's upside down in which people are so brainwashed that they will believe direct contradictions just because it's repeated enough. Friends, I want you to know that because of the way that sin has worked itself out in our world and because of the awful influence of Satan, we sometimes forget, I think, that the Bible calls the devil the prince of the power of the air. Uh, Jesus himself called Satan the ruler of this world. The awful influence of the devil. And, and on top of all that, we're, easy, we're gullible to the, to the ways of sin because of the way our own hearts have been twisted by sin. And for all those reasons, the idea of freedom in righteousness, freedom in holiness, almost sounds as wrong and as weird to us as the political slogans from Orwell's Oceania. War is peace, freedom is slavery, Ignorance is strength, and we may add the fourth. There's freedom in holiness. Our culture bristles at the idea that anyone telling us what to do might result in joy. That that any sort of moral obligation might result in freedom. It sounds almost ridiculous to modern ears. And I think sometimes as Christians, we've even bought into this thinking, even just a little bit, feeling sort of like, well, all people really care about. They don't really care about us knowing God or becoming more like Jesus. What people really care about is having control or whatever else. But in reality, my friends, 
Holiness, holiness, righteousness is freedom. And yet, we must know that the fact that God wants us to be holy, that God hates sin, is ultimately another aspect of what it means for God to be love. Now, consider this. I, the, the, the title of this series is Summer of Love. and Somebody may leave here today saying, it's kind of a funny sermon to preach. I saw the hippie banner outside, and I wanted to come in and learn about love. And guess what I got? Another uh, fire and brimstone Baptist sermon. You know, we th- I thought things might change a little bit. How awful would God's grace be? How awful would God's love be? If sin is what the Bible says it is and God left us in it. How terrible would that be? How, how terrible would it be if you were sick in some way, had an ailment in some way, and someone came up to you and said, I know how to cure that. I know it's an awful way to live. You should be so thankful there's a cure for that. And you, you, your face brightens up, you get so excited, and they say, well, good meeting you. I hope you find it too, you know. Now, oh, what a terrible person that would be to not give you the help you needed. How terrible would God be? How ungracious would God be? How terrible would His grace be if He offered us the remedy for sin but left us in sin? You cannot preach a sermon series on love. You can't write a book on love like John has done here and on God's love without preaching on, without writing about sin. In fact, I would say there's nothing more unloving than pretending like sin is no big deal. Our righteousness is through Christ and Christ alone. And this morning, I want you to see how to find the freedom that comes through righteousness that's found in Christ and Christ alone. How how do we find the freedom that comes through righteousness in Jesus? That is, this morning, I want to show you three truths on the reality of sin and the freedom that we can find in the righteousness that comes through Christ. Three truths on sin and righteousness this morning. Here's the first. I hope you'll find freedom in clarity on sin. Find freedom in clarity on sin. Now, John has just got done waxing eloquent, uh, exalting in the love of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Chapter 3, verse 1. He talks about the hope that we have when He appears. But then He reminds us in verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in Him, everyone who's with their hope in Jesus, purifies Himself as He is pure. And now He shows us the sort of negative film of that picture He's just presented to us, helping us see how serious sin is. Notice what He says. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The very notion of sin as a category is foolishness to our society. The very idea that there might be something called sin or that we might do something called sin, that we might displease God even, if there is a God they might say, in any way seems like foolishness to our world. But brothers and sisters, the Bible could not be more clear about sin. The, the Bible could not be more clear about sin. There's, there's a reason why some people will accidentally preach law and preach on sin all the time instead of preaching grace. It's because the Bible talks a lot about sin. 
And they're right in the sense that sin is very serious. The problem is people who preach legalism, people who preach the law all the time, just have the wrong remedy. God's grace is the remedy. But we can't afford, in order to magnify grace, to be unclear on sin. In fact, you undermine grace by being unclear on sin. John introduces us to a maxim. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. In this context, what John means when he talks about lawlessness is a blatant disregard for God and His moral commands. This Greek word leads to the word we have called antinomianism, being against the law. Lawlessness is a blatant, total disregard for God and His moral commands. Here's what, here's what John is telling us. So, so often we'll take sin and we'll say, well, yeah, I sinned, but is it really that big of a deal? What is John saying? He said, every sin, every sin is a revolution. Every sin, every sin is a coup d'etat against the king of the universe. Every single sin is a blatant disregard for the God who reigns and rules over the world. We cannot say, well, yeah, I sin, but not in the really bad, lawless ways. Sin is lawlessness. And anyone who makes a practice of sinning is practicing lawlessness. That is, we are treacherous in our sin. We have rebelled against the king of the universe. Sin is in itself a blatant disregard for God and His moral commands. Any sin we commit is a conspiracy against the King. We cannot, as Christians, downplay the reality of sin. The reality of sin. I think the world we live in has lost the stomach for what it means to live in a sinful world. We want a world where we where we uh, enjoy the benefits of righteousness without going through the challenge of trying to deal with sin at any level. The, the hardness of what it means to live in a fallen world. You, you see, we can try to explain sin away. We can try to shroud it in therapeutic language. We can pretend like it's no big deal or whatever else. But the reality is we have to confront what is true. An embrace of sin is a rejection of God. This is why the Bible says that all righteousness must come by faith and ultimately teaches that all sin is rooted in pride because to embrace sin is to let go of our creators, to turn our back on God. In fact, we cannot not only can we not downplay the reality of sin, but we also can't downplay God's opinion of sin. This fault doesn't stop in verse 4. John continues on to verse 5. You know that He appeared that is the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. God saw sin as a problem, and the work of Jesus is to deal with sin. And so we cannot downplay God's opinion of sin, and therefore in all these things connected, we cannot downplay the seriousness of sin. Sin is real. It's a rejection of God. And God has purposed to take away sin, and in Himself God is sinless. He is perfectly pure. We cannot for a moment cease to take sin seriously. And I think it, there's a temptation for all of us here. For all of us here. In fact, some of our minds may have already gone there. 
just think about, man, if the world could just hear this. If so-and-so could just hear this. You, you, you know, if, if, man, I wish we could just broadcast the message about sin to all those unwashed masses, all those heathens out there who are living out lawlessness. My friends, I, I do think the world needs to hear about sin, but so does the church. So-and-so needs to hear about sin, but you probably need to hear about it first, don't you think? I don't think we're living perfect lives. I don't think we're perfectly righteous. Don't think these warnings about taking sin seriously are just for those outside the church. So often what we do is we see the way that other people aren't taking sin seriously and puff up ourselves about the ways we are, but we miss our own blind spots. We miss the ways that we are falling short of God's glory. We miss the ways that we're in rebellion against God. There's a freedom, my friends, though, in knowing what is right and what is wrong and thinking and believing accordingly. There's a, there's, a, there's a freedom in knowing God's expectations are clear. There's a free, freedom in knowing what we should and should not do. There, there's a freedom in knowing that righteousness is extolled by God and that God is against sin. There's a freedom in clarity on sin, and we cannot cease to be clear when it comes to sin. But second of all, not only do we find freedom in clarity on sin, second of all, we find freedom in fighting sin. I want to challenge you to find freedom in fighting sin. Now, I want you to notice something here, verses 6 through 8. And in in fact, I want to really focus for a moment on verse 6, because it's going to help us understand the rest of the passage. No one who abides in Him, as those who are living and finding their hope and faith in Jesus Christ, no one who's genuinely a Christian, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. I spent my freshman year of college at Sneed State Community College, my hometown in Boaz, and um, we would eat lunch in the cafeteria often. Uh, The Sneed Cafeteria is legendary in Boaz. It's where you go to eat lunch after church on Sunday. It's delicious. It's a great place. So you can eat lunch then as a student. I don't know how much it is now. I bet I know somebody that knows, but uh, I don't know how much it is now. But yeah, I think you could eat lunch in the Sneed cafeteria for less than $5 when I was a student there. And so, man, we would tear the Sneed cafeteria up. So one day, me and my friends are sitting in the cafeteria at Sneed, and we're eating lunch. And a guy comes in and uh, starts uh, sort of sitting at different tables. He's clearly on a mission. And it turns out he was a Christian perfectionist. Uh, he, he believed that you could, could live without sin, that Christians not only could become sinless, but should be sinless. So you'd read a verse like this or a passage like this and say, what this means then is if you are sinning, if you have sinned, that means you're not a Christian. So he was coming up to all the different tables, and he would just sit down, and it was a really winsome sort of evangelism he was doing. He would just say, when was the last time you sinned? And then, of course, your answer is, right now? <laughs> When's the last time you sinned? And you'd say, I don't know, man. I mean, pretty frequently, I think. And he would say, well, that means you're not a Christian. He would try to convince you you're not a Christian. He would try to press in on you that you're not a believer. He would try to uh, force you to think through these things. He would abuse a text like this. 
Now, Christians must fight sin, but I don't want anyone in this room to leave here for a moment thinking that these verses teach what we might call a sort of sinless Christian perfectionism. Now, if you've got the opportunity or the possibility to stop sinning, let me suggest you take the opportunity, okay? I'm not saying we don't try to stop sinning. I don't mean that. But John has clearly already said in his own book, anyone who says he is without sin is a liar. Uh, John has already said uh, to the effect of something to the effect of, and if we do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. John has already taught, made clear, Christians will sin. What is he talking about here then? And I love the way the ESV translates this because it helps make it so clear. People who make a practice of sinning. And he goes on to say people who keep on Sinning. People who make a practice of sinning, who, who keep on sinning, are showing that they do not abide in Christ and that Christ does not abide in them. Because, why? Because they would need to uh, deny God to keep sinning in that way. That is, if you are deliberately, without any remorse, continuing on in sin despite knowing it's sin, I would encourage you to come by and talk to me and let's talk about whether or not you truly know Jesus. Now, now it could be that a sermon like this is what you need to hear. To be reminded of that, it may lead you to repentance. It may help you in God's grace. Uh, So don't mishear me here. But I want you to know that as we fight sin, we have to recognize, and some of you have very tender consciences, and and some of you struggle with feeling assurance. And as we go through 1 John, we'll try to uh, uh, lead into assurance. But I don't want you, if you stub your toe this afternoon and say something you shouldn't say, to automatically assume that means you're not a Christian. But I want to say, if for years and years you've known something's a sin, and yet not even tried to repent, not tried to move on from that sin, perhaps it's time to evaluate whether or not you truly know Jesus. Because Christians fight sin. Christians don't just give in. Christians fight sin. I had a pastor before, and I would say, uh, man, I'm really struggling with this sin. And he would say, well, what are you doing about it? And I would say, well, not really a lot right now. I don't know what to do. And he said, well, you're not struggling with it. You're just giving into it. Struggle implies a fight. So I, I commend you in the work of struggling with sin, fighting against sin. John gives us all kinds of reasons in verses 6 through 8 why we ought to fight sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. That is, fight sin because of whose you are. You belong to Jesus. Jesus hates sin. He came to do away with sin, to deliver you from sin. You belong to Christ. You're in the family of God. Stop the sin. Repent. Change. Turn away. Fight sin because of what you have seen and who you know. No one keeps on sinning, John tells us, who has either seen Him or known Him. If you've seen Jesus and seen the beauty of the gospel and seen how beautiful the gospel is in this picture of the Lord's Supper and you've tasted of these things, you've seen them and you know God, why would you continue in sin when you know that Jesus offers what is better? Fight sin for the sake of the truth. Little children, John says, let no one 
deceive you. That is, don't listen to the voices that want to tell you that sin doesn't matter, that sin's not a big deal. There are so many false narratives of sin and holiness that are out there that are ready to lure us away. But instead, we need to focus on the true gospel and the true word. We need to fight sin because of the truth. We need to fight sin because Jesus Christ is righteous. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. As God himself said in the Old Testament, as he's saying here, be ye holy as I am holy. How do you ever expect to grow in righteousness without fighting sin? Fight sin because of the devil's example. The devil has been sinning from the beginning, John tells us. Don't for a moment forget that sin is devilish. It's, it's acting like Satan. Satan has sinned from the beginning, and we don't want to be associated with our Lord's enemy. Fight sin because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Remember this. Remember where these works lead. Remember, remember what God will do with the devil and those who follow him. Will Jesus not be victorious? Think about this. Think about the way that Satan put forth his best efforts to undo the work of God at the cross. And yet what he tried to accomplish at the cross was actually his own defeat and undoing. How much worse will the devil and his works fare when Jesus comes back to explicitly conquer? How much worse will it be? Just remember this, that we want to fight sin because we don't want to associate with the devil and his works. Brothers and sisters, there is such freedom in fighting sin. Sin enslaves, sin ensnares. We get this sense that one of the great lies that are told in the world is that, that the freedom to sin is true freedom. But my friends, the freedom to sin is actually slavery. Sin ensnares us, it holds on to us, it holds us back. Sin enslaves and ensnares, but we must become freedom fighters through the Word and the Spirit, fighting so that we can live unto God without the burden of sin in our lives. Find freedom, my friends, first of all, through clarity on sin, through fighting sin, and finally, find freedom in pursuing righteousness. Not only does the Bible teach us to put off evil works, but it teaches us to put on righteousness. Righteousness belongs to those who have been born of God. Don't be confused here, my friends. Don't be confused. You are not able, you are not capable. You are not capable of fighting sin on your own. You are not capable of fighting sin on your own. No, you need God's help. Righteousness belongs only to those who have been born of God. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If you can't can't seem to conquer sin, if you keep trying to follow the rules, if you keep trying to fight sin and it keeps winning, you need the help of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be born again. And you are helped because the Bible says God's seed abides in you. That is when you are converted, when you are born again, you are then indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And that's the only way that we can see genuine victory over sin. You cannot for a moment expect to pursue righteousness apart from the work of Christ. 
Those who trust God, who are born of God, cannot keep on sinning because they've been born of God. That's what keeps us from continuing in sin. Notice what John goes on to say. In the last verse, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Children of the devil don't practice righteousness and love their neighbor. Children of God do. And I want you to know it's so difficult to put the whole package together. It's so hard to, to marry together adherence to God's commands moral righteousness, and a genuine love for our neighbor. It's so difficult to do. It's so hard to do. In fact, it is impossible without God's help. We can't quite get the thing put together without His help. You see, cold, self-righteous Pharisaism is attainable without God's help because it's counterfeit righteousness. Open, accepting, anything goes, warmth and affirmation is attainable without God's help because it's counterfeit love. Satan loves counterfeit righteousness and he loves counterfeit love and his children are excellent counterfeiters because he is the supreme counterfeiter. Satan is lord over vast sweatshops that are there only to manufacture counterfeit goods that only genuinely come from Zion, that only genuinely come from the Lord. Christians, our Lord and our Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Let's take the fake stuff that we try to make on our own, throw it in the incinerator, and pursue by the righteousness of the Spirit the authentic righteousness that comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. Sin has messed up our world. It's rewired our thinking in such a way that a sentence like righteousness is freedom can sound downright Orwellian. But when we are clear on sin and when we fight sin and when we pursue righteousness, we help the world see what Jesus is doing. How He's setting the world right side up. How He's destroying the works of the devil. How He's bringing peace and justice and righteousness into the world. Take heart, my friends. Have hope. Sin has not won and it will not win. It will not triumph. In fact, the devil may rage and our hearts may falter and our faith may feel thin, but Christ is triumphant. You know that He appeared to take away sins and in Him there is no sin.